We're going to be reading from Revelation chapter 11. We've already dealt with verses 1 and 2, but I'll read those again. It's on page 19, majority text there. I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who are worshiping there, and leave out the outer court of the temple and do not measure it, because it has been given to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for forty-two months. And I will give authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy one thousand two hundred and sixty days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees, even the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire comes out of their mouths and consumes their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. They have authority to shut up the sky so that no rain falls during the days of their prophecy. And they have authority over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they wish. When they finish their witness, the beast of prey that comes up out of the, of the abyss will make war with them, overcome them, and kill them. And leave their corpses in the street of the great city, which is called Sodom and Egypt, spiritually speaking, even where their Lord was crucified. And those from the peoples, tribes, languages, and ethnic nations look at their corpses three and a half days and will not allow their corpses to be buried. And those who dwell on the earth rejoice over them, and they will enjoy themselves and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. And after three and a half days, the breath from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and a great fear fell on those who were watching them. And I heard a loud voice from the heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And in that day there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 individuals were killed in the earthquake. And the rest became fearful and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Look out, here comes the third woe. Father God, we thank you for your word. It is our glory to study it, seek to understand it. I pray that you would give us humility as we do so. You would give us insight, the opening up of the eyes of our understanding, and that you would help us to apply it faithfully. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we come now to the discussion of the two witnesses who invaded a dangerous city uh, with the gospel at the very time that all of the other Christians had bailed out of that city. And I think this right off the bat informs us that God gives different callings to different folks, right? Uh, there are some people that uh, God uh, calls to flee. In fact, in the Gospels, Jesus commanded some to flee. And there are others at the very same time, they are confronting the enemy head on. They're going right into the lion's den. And there's this tendency to judge one another as if their way is the only way. But we see that God himself has different callings for different folks. And next time that I preach on this passage, we're going to get into some of the nitty-gritty implications and applications. But before we can even get into some of that fun stuff, there are two controversies that absolutely have to be settled, or our applications are going to go astray. And the first controversy is the length of the war, and you're going to see uh, that uh, I'm in a minority on that, but there are our commentaries who agree with me. Hopefully, uh, you'll be convinced my, by my exposition here. The second is the identity of these two witnesses. And since it's been some weeks since I preached on the first two verses of uh, chapter 11, let me give you a little bit of a recap. We saw that chapters 6 through 9 are a seamless timeline of events from 30 A.D. all the way up to Vespasian bringing his troops to the border of uh, Israel in A.D. 67. I'm not going to recap the dates of all of those chapters, but if you want to put a date beside verse 1, John measures this temple for destruction on the very day, at the very time that the Jews, noticing Vespasian's arrival, are frantically making preparations uh, for Jerusalem to uh, protect it. That is Adar 19 of AD 67, which if my calculations are correct, would be February 20 of AD 67. So the measurement that John does 
takes place exactly 1260 days before the temple was burned. John prophesied a year earlier, but he's looking slightly into the future. Now we saw that the first half of verse 2 describes the extent of the destruction which occurred in the first half of the seven-year war. And the second half of verse 2 says that even after the temple and the city are destroyed, it's destroyed in AD 70, even after that, the Romans aren't going to leave. They're going to be sticking around. In fact, they're going to make their base camp on the temple grounds, the outer courts, and some of the outer buildings they're going to keep intact because that's going to be a part of their base of operations to trample Jerusalem for the next 42 months. At the end of those 42 months, they hand the administration of the city over to the Jewish authorities. And so verses 1 through 2 are a general overview of the whole seven-year war. Then verse 3 goes back to the beginning of that seven-year war and says that these two witnesses would prophesy during the first half of that war before Jerusalem is destroyed. There's no escaping that. Uh, Verses 3 through 14 make it quite clear. They are prophesying before Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed. And so verse 3 has to be going back then to the beginning of, of the war. So shortly after the other Christians escape the city, these two enter the city on what appears to be a suicide mission. They would prophesy from Adar 19 of AD 67 until four days before the temple is burned. Now, I believe even those four days is counted as part of the 1260 days because um, they're lying in the streets exposed. Everybody sees them. They're being resurrected again as a testimony against Israel. It brings fear to them. So I think the counting is perfect if you count it right up to the day uh, that they are caught up. Um, Now, I've diagrammed that seven-year war for you in your outlines, and the reason I'm spending a little bit more time on this uh, point here is that the failure to understand these seven years, I think, is what has kept... Well, there are several features that that we have been correcting in partial preterism, but it's kept partial preterists from being able to effectively answer the objections of dispensationalists. Dispensationalists have been rightly convinced... That it was a set that, that God had, had predicted a seven year great wrath. And they're absolutely right on that. They're not going to back down on that. And so I think uh, it's one of the apologetical points that is important, but even more important, if you don't see seven year war, there are several passages in Revelation you're going to get wrong. Uh, so even though it's boring to you, it's a very important topic. Sorry about that, but we do have to take at least one Sunday to, to settle these controversies before we can start digging into the exciting stuff. So how long was the war? If the only thing you read was uh, the partial preterist commentaries, and I'm part of the partial preterist camp, okay, that means that we believe most of chapters 1 through 19 has already been fulfilled. That's what partial preterism means. Most of those chapters have been fulfilled. But when you read most of the partial preterist commentaries, you would get the impression that there was only a three and a half year war against Israel and that ended at 70 AD. That is absolutely false. You can read any of the ancient historians, Josephus, Eusebius, Hegesippus, Yosipon, Suetonius, Tacitus, they're all consistent on this fact that it was seven years. And modern historians, the same thing. Kornfeld, Mazer, Meyer, Schurer. Let me just give you some quotes. Grace Aguilar says, The destructive Jewish war lasted seven years. George English said, The horrible Jewish war lasted seven years. The forward to Josephus' account says, A first-hand account of the seven-year war. And of course, Josephus himself documents in minute detail seven years of war. Emil Schur and others do the same thing. And so it's a total mystery to me why the vast majority of partial preterists think it ended in AD 70. It's a huge mistake. They completely miss several references to the second half of the war, which, by the way, was almost as important, maybe not quite as important, but there were actually more who died in the second half of the war, millions who died, than died in the first half of the war. So we cannot ignore it. But I want you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 9, 
And I want to read a prophecy that Jesus referred to that also predicted this war. We looked at Daniel 9, verse 24, in much more detail a few weeks ago when we dealt with the ending of prophecy in AD 70. So AD 70 is a very significant date, not just for the ending of prophecy and the ending of all the old covenant uh, ceremonies, but I want you to take a look at the first phrase of verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. God would continue to deal harshly with the people and the city right up until the end of that 70 weeks. And let me remind you of what those weeks were. In the Hebrew uh, thinking, a week was a period of seven. It could be seven days, and the end of that seven-day period would have a Sabbath. Or it could be seven years, and the end of that seven-year period would have a Sabbath year. And the Jews called that week of that seven periods of years, they called it a week. Okay, so there's a week of days, a week of years. This is clearly talking about a week of years. And in context, the purpose of the prophecy was to describe how long God would be patient with Israel when they steadfastly refused to give the land rest on that Sabbath year. That was a huge act of faith, but they lacked the faith to do that. And Daniel was predicting that there would be 70 weeks in which the Jews would violate the Sabbath year before the Jewish nation and Israel would be destroyed. Now, there were periods of time when they did faithfully allow the land to lie fallow. But Revelation 11 verse 1 has talked about both people and holy city being destroyed. It's exactly the same event. It's the same language. Now, if you go down to Daniel 9 verse 26, we have a description of the last week. The 70 weeks are divided up into three periods. It says, and after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. Now, the Hebrew word for after is wa'achare, uh, and it literally refers to the tail end, or immediately after. Jesus was not cut off in the middle of the seventh week, I mean the 70th week, as so many people uh, think. He's cut off right at the tail end of the 69th week, after the 62 in that second period. So that leaves an entire week after Jesus' death. But just as there was a 40-year gap of Sabbath-keeping before the first seven, that was when Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah were making the people keep the land follow, and there was a 40-year gap between the seven weeks and the 62 weeks, there's another 40-year gap between the 62 weeks and the last week, the 70th week. And by the way, uh, various scholars say it was because John the Baptist succeeded in getting the people to repent and to, and to begin to have the, the land life follow. Now, the rest of verse 26 describes that whole war that was fought under Titus. It says, "...and the people of the prince who is to come." That prince was Titus. It's not Christ, as some people say, it was Titus. He was not yet the emperor. His dad was the emperor, and his dad declared him to be the emperor uh, to follow him. So even though he was the heir apparent, he was still a prince, and as a prince, he pretty much ran the whole show of the war. So verse 26 again, And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Notice that phrase, till the end of the war. Not till AD 70, but till the end of the war. So verse 26 is describing the whole war, the whole seven-year period. And then verse 27 will go back and describe that seven-year period and emphasize just how certain its destruction would be. Now, unfortunately, the New King James starts with the word then, and you get the impression that it's, okay, this is going to be subsequent. That's a mistranslation. And... um, uh, virtually every other translation just translates its and. Uh, and it's describing another facet of what would happen during the same period of time. So it should say, And he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Now, John Martin Butt's commentary comments on these verses perfectly. 
He says, and if the Messiah, as is plain, was to be cut off at the end of the 69 weeks, and Jerusalem was to be destroyed in the 70th week, it follows that the last week of the 70 was unquestionably designed to separate from the 69 weeks and not immediately to follow them, as some have supposed. The Jewish war lasted seven years, and in the year of Christ, 66, which was the first of the seven years, the Christians escaped out of Jerusalem in obedience to the New Testament and were thereby preserved from destruction. In the year 70, the city and temple were destroyed, and consequently the sacrifice and oblation therein ceased. But the war was carried on for three years and a half after that event, as it had been for the same period before. So it's seven years divided up into two equal portions of three and a half years each. Now, if Revelation is the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 9, you're going to expect to see a seven-year war in Revelation, and you do. You do. It's absolutely imperative that we understand this seven-year timeline. Now, flip over to Daniel chapter 12, and we'll read verses 6 through 13. And one said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Then I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left to heaven, and swore by him who lives forever, that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. Now time is one year or shorter. Times is two years. Half a time would be half a year. It would be six, six months. So you add those up, you got your first three and a half Years Now, verse 7 continues by saying, even after that time, time, and half a time, there's still going to be more after that. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. It was not completely shattered in AD 70. It was shattered in AD 74, as he will continue to point out in verse 8. Although I heard, I did not understand Then I said, My Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white, and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. When was the daily sacrifice taken away? It was smack dab in the middle of that week, that seven-year uh, period when the temple was burned. It was burned on Ab 9 of AD 70, which I convert to August 3, and that was the date that Titus came into the temple. He cursed the god of that temple, said he had defeated the god of that temple, and he proceeded to try to defile that temple. What he did is he put two... Uh, He put a a, a, um, a scroll of the law on top of the altar, put two prostitutes on top, had sex with those prostitutes. He has erected the eagle standard as a sign that Rome was now the dominator of this temple. In other ways, he definitely defiled it. So Ab 9 of AD 70, very significant date. But he also talks about 1,290 days after that event. Now, if you count forward 1,290 days you come to the point where Roman atrocities around the empire ceased. That was when Rome actually declared a, a ceasefire, so to speak. There was a general peace accord. Multiplied millions had died during the second half of the war, so it's a very significant portion. Uh, but there's one more warning that he gives. Even though Rome comes to peace with the Jews, God warns believing Jews, hey, don't go back into Israel for another 45 days because if you do, you're going to immediately be snatched up by the prince who is to come. That's Titus. And you're going to be snatched up and conscripted into slave labor for taking that last little Masada, you know, that last little stronghold that some of the Sakari had. And those Sakari continued to fight after the peace accord. Okay, so Rome didn't even consider it a war with Israel anymore. This is, he's just dealing with some troublemakers up in Masada. So verse 12 warns, Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. If you count from the day the temple was burned forward 1,335 days, you come to the exact date that Masada fell, Nisan 15, AD 74. 
Uh, verse 13 concludes, But you go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. And we're going to be looking at the issue of a first century uh, resurrection at a later time because uh, there are two resurrections, Revelation 20 says. There's one in the first century. There's one at the, uh, the end of time. But if you keep the seven-year chronology in mind, so many things beautifully fall into place. And this is what I love about the Scripture. Every detail works. Every detail is important. Every detail can be trusted. And if you'd like to be able to reference the, the dates, I don't have any problems with your pulling out your phones, going to kaisercommentary.com. There should be a timeline that I keep adding to every week there uh, in which you'll see important dates on this timeline being laid out. But what are the practical implications? Even this boring material that we just went through has practical implications. First implication, things are not getting worse and worse. It's a huge implication. Why would I say things are not getting worse and worse? Well, it's because everyone knows that the Bible says things are going to be getting worse and worse up to that seven-year period, wherever it transpires. And if it's future to us, oh my, we're in a world of hurt. Uh, you know, we're not going to have faith to expect great things from God or to attempt great things from Him because the church is going to be defeated uh, going up to that time. It's a mess. So if you do not solve this mess, if you do not understand this key to in interpreting prophecy, it's going to either dampen or perhaps even kill your faith for the future. But if these seven years are in the first century, wow, it is exciting. Because from that point on, the church has everything that it needs to conquer the world if it has faith, if it has faith. We're not looking forward to the church being extinguished. That's past. The beast is past. Antichrist is past. Okay, everything tied in with the great tribulation and the great wrath is past. It's a huge implication. Second, if the leveling of civilization made way for the church to expand and eventually take over the Roman Empire, we should not fear similar judgments. Could America collapse? Yes, it could. But if it does... It is to prepare the way for further advances of Christ's kingdom. Third, the details of this timing prove that even tough times are totally under God's control. To me, this is very, very encouraging. The saints should not be fear-based. They should be faith-based. We should have faith that God's able to even work tough times together for the good of His church. Fourth, it shows God's incredible patience. God waited 40 years, you know, they said his blood be on us and on our children. God waited 40 years before he finally judged Israel, and, and his patience is something we sometimes get frustrated with, but we shouldn't. His patience is a wonderful thing. I'm glad he's patient with me, I'm glad he's patient with, with society, because it gives opportunity for repentance, it gives opportunity for salvation. And then fifth, despite his patience, judgments deserved will always rest upon nations. Israel didn't get off the hook. There's no nation that gets off the hook. If it continues in rebellion, it will eventually be judged. It is absolutely guaranteed. Now let's dive into the identity of the two witnesses. And the reason that we need to do this is that there is a, a lot of controversy. <laughs> What's new, right? Uh, we're, we're getting used to the fact that this book is just filled with all kinds of, of controversies, and we have to settle them before we can apply the chapter. Now, in scanning through my ever-growing set of commentaries, uh, I now have 95 commentaries on Revelation, I have run across 37 different theories of the identity of these two witnesses. And commentaries from every viewpoint, dispensational, premillennial, idealist, futurist, you know, all of them are frustrated that they cannot seem to nail down all of the different facts in this passage. Very, very frustrated. Can't get to the bottom of the issue. F.W. Farrar expresses the opinion of many when he says this, these questions have never been satisfactorily answered and perhaps never will be. We must be content to leave them in the half-light in which the uncertainty of 19 Christian centuries has left them hitherto. There are no two writers of any importance who even approximately agree in the interpretation of the symbols. Every interpretation seems to be beset with insuperable difficulties. No one school of commentators 
has been more successful than its rivals. Great depressing way to start a sermon, right? <laughs> well, I hope to prove him wrong this morning. I, I think we can know with an absolute certainty that they were two literal individuals in the first century. And I happen to believe they had to have been two apostles as well uh, because of the word witnesses, and there's a few other clues, but we'll, we'll leave that aside for now. It's guaranteed they had to be two literal human uh, uh, individuals in the first century. Let me explain how I came to that position. Whenever I have a puzzle like this in Scripture, what I do is I go through the text with a fine-tooth comb. I write down every possible hint as to what these characters, like the beast, or in this case, the, the, the two witnesses, what they have to be. What are the hints as to what God wants us to believe about them? Then I comb through the, the commentaries, and I look at all of the different theories, and then I set up a spreadsheet, sort of like this, and I systematically apply every hint against every theory, and I will black out anything that fails. And if they're all blacked out, then it's back to the drawing board, and you have to continue searching. Okay, none of these things work. And... Um, I've deliberately kept this away from you, so you're not reading this during the whole sermon, but afterwards you can come up and get this paper where I give all of the different clues, all of the different uh, hints that are on there, and you'll see there's a graphical narrowing down of these uh, to three possibilities uh, on the sheet. Now let's just do a tiny bit of investigative work ourselves this morning. We're only going to look at six of the 16 clues. The first clue that we have is that this is a first-century context. And for anybody who's a partial preterist, that's just a natural, because if the beast of Revelation is in the first century, and these prophets are killed by the beast, well, obviously, they have to be in the first century too, right? But because there's a lot of controversy about that, and I don't want to get into the, the beast until later on in the book, I'm going to give you some other clues from within this text. Um, we saw last sermon that verse 1 says that at the very moment that John was receiving this revelation, there were Jews, quote, who are worshiping, so it's in the present tense, who are worshiping at the altar of the temple. Well, that means that the temple in view is the first century temple. It was still standing while John received the revelation. Second, verse 4 uses the perfect tense of the Greek, when it says that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now let me explain. We don't have a tense in English that is this way. But in the Greek there is a tense of the verb that indicates that something started in the past with a continuing abiding result in the present. So <clears throat> the prophetic witness that these witnesses started started before John received his revelation and continues into the present. Even while John is being given this revelation, they are prophets, okay? But then these already existing prophets are now given a new special commission that is future to the vision. If they're already living, they have to be first century people, but if the three and a half year commission is about to start, it can't start till... Uh, any earlier than uh, John's revelation. In other words, it can't start earlier than AD 66. Well, that rules out it being John the Baptist and Jesus. It rules out some other uh, uh, examples as well. And the last proof is that after they die, we saw that there would be an additional 42 months in which Rome would occupy the temple, trample the streets of Jerusalem. Uh, we looked at that in the last message, and we saw the only historical period that really fits is 67 through 70. Uh, well, no, that they trample is 70 through 74, but that really narrows down to 67 to 70 as to where these prophets fit. So it all, all comes down together. Uh, all by itself, that clue rules out 30 of the 37 theories. Pretty efficient, right? Now, I've gone to a great deal of, of length, and you can pick this up later. I didn't want to bore you with the material. This is plenty boring by itself. Uh, but if you can be efficient by picking the right clues, you can save yourself a lot of time, and that's what we're doing this morning. Now let's go to the second clue. This text also teaches us that these two witnesses are real human individuals. 
Okay? Of course, there are a lot of th theories that resist that notion. Even some partial preterists insist that these two witnesses had to be symbols of something corporate. So the corporate interpretation from various schools of thought thinks that these two individuals represent something like Israel and the church, or the elect from the Old and the New Testaments, or the Waldensians and the Albigensians. There's any number of corporate interpretations. Others say that these are symbols of the Law and the Prophets, or the Old and New Testaments, or Mercy and Grace, or Law and Gospel, or the kingly and priestly aspects of the church. And again, even our own camp of partial preterists a mess up here. There's a long line of symbolic interpretations. All of those interpretations can be ruled out if these two witnesses can be proved to be real humans. Now that's not to say that they don't symbolize something. They do. And there's a lot of symbols that point to them. But like all the other symbols in this book, they are rooted in real history. Okay? So it's real people who stand as symbols. Now I'm, I'm not going to uh, take the time to give all the proofs that these are real individual humans, but let me give you a few, and we're going to go through these really, really quickly. These two witnesses have personal properties like desire. So the last phrase of verse 6 says that they can perform a certain miracle as often as they desire, or as often as they wish. Well, desire, that's a, a personal attribute, an attribute of personality. Likewise, verse 3 says that these witnesses have speech. Verse 11 says they have breath. Verse 12 says they have hearing. Likewise, verse 6 says that they have authority in what they do. And verse, uh, let's see, verse 8 says that they operate under authority. That simply does not make sense of many of the interpretations such as mercy and grace or law and gospel. Verses 7 through 10 show that they are subject to death, actually experience death, while verses 11 through 12 show them coming back to life. Now, some people say the two witnesses stand for the Scripture. Really? Does the Scripture die? Does the Scripture come back to life? That's one theory. Anyway, they have bodies, verse 8, with mouths, verse 5, feet, verse 11. These bodies are clothed, verse 3. They have breath of life, verse 11. They can be seen while they're dead, verse 9. They can be seen while they're alive, verse 12. When their bodies are dead, their bodies are called corpses, verse 8, and being denied graves is considered a great indignity, verse 9. You see where I'm going with this? I think it's just ludicrous to take a symbolic approach or a corporate approach on these things. All of these things indicate they are real humans. This is strengthened by the fact that these two are called witnesses in verse 3, and they're called prophets in verse 10. Look for yourself, but I've got the verses written down here. You can look throughout the book of Revelation. Every time it mentions a witness, it is a real human. Every time it mentions a prophet, it is a real human. It's not a symbol of something else. The two witnesses are also uh, likened uh, to the image of two olive trees, verse 4, which comes from Zechariah chapter 4, verse 14. And what does Zechariah 4, 14 say the two olive trees are? They're two literal prophets back in Zechariah's time. And likewise, these two are likened to Elijah and Moses. They were literal prophets, Right? So you can see there is overwhelming evidence that these two witnesses were first century humans. Alford's uh, commentary quotes uh, verse 5, and if anyone be minded to harm them after this manner, he must be killed. And then he comments on that. He says, this whole description is most difficult to apply on the allegorical interpretation, as is that which follows. And as might have been expected, the allegorists halt and are perplexed exceedingly. The double announcement here seems to stamp the literal sense, and the Greek atis and deauton apokton thenai are decisive against any mere national application of the words, as Eliot does. Individuality could not be more strongly indicated. Well, if you're convinced by my argumentation, well, that rules out numerous theories, including some partial preterist theories like uh, Chilton's. A third clue is that these are not representative of one witness in two dimensions, as several theories would have it, but as two witnesses as to their persons. For example, some people say that the two witnesses are Jesus Christ in AD 30, and the reason he is called two witnesses is because he has a kingly and a priestly 
office or function. And I say, well, why not three witnesses? He was also a prophet, right? Prophet, priest, and king. Uh, but, you know, besides that, I, I do admit that the interpretation makes some sense in that he, you know, dies, he rises on the third day. Well, actually, it's on the fourth day, isn't it? It doesn't quite fit because it's three and a half days. Uh, but the theory does make sense of some other features, but there's all kinds of problems with that interpretation. First of all, if the angel is a created angel speaking for Jesus, as I believe, how can a mere creature call Jesus my two witnesses? And furthermore, how can those two witnesses, if they are Jesus, be said to have Jesus as their Lord, as verse 8 says that they do, how can Jesus be Jesus' Lord? Uh, that doesn't make any sense. So some people say, well, the angel's not a creaturely angel. The angel is Jesus himself. Well, you can apply the same thing there. How can Jesus call Jesus my two witnesses? <laughs> you know, how can Jesus call Jesus my Lord? It just does not make any sense. That theory is bogus, even though it has some things. And there are godly people who hold to it. I shouldn't, you know, be too harsh on them. It does have some uh, godly people who hold to it. But there are other theories that have the two witnesses be two dimensions of something else, like the kingly and the priestly dimensions of the church. So they see both witnesses as representing the entire church. And I want you to notice, though, that the word two prefaces their persons, not simply their roles. Verse 3 speaks of my two witnesses. Verse 4, the two olive trees and the two lampstands. And verse 10 speaks of these two prophets. And I'm not going to take the time to reference all the verses, but throughout this chapter, the angel speaks of these two witnesses using the personal pronouns they, them, and their. Now, next time, we're going to be seeing the meaning of um, the two olive trees and from Zechariah chapter 4, verse 14. And those two olive trees, what are they? They're two literal prophets. Uh, one was a king, the other was a priest, but they were pro both prophets. Not simply two offices in one person. They were you could say two offices and two persons. And so I just don't see how you can get around the fact that these are two prophetic people, not one person with two functions. Now, fourth clue is that these witnesses consistently prophesy for a limited time, not for an entire age. Many of the theories have the witnesses prophesying for an entire age or even for all time. But let's notice some of the very precise timing that can't be fuzzy. Verse 3 says that they will prophesy for 1,260 days. Verse 6 says that they have power to stop rain during the days of their prophecy, not before, not after. There's a time limitation. The phrase during the days of indicates this isn't going on forever. It's not going on even for an age. It's limited. Verse 7 indicates that they finish their witness during the time of the beast. Now, can that really be said of the theory that claims that this is the witness of Scripture against a godless church? No. Does it really fit the interpretation that says it's the elect of the Old New Testament? No. Or the one that says it's the Jewish and Gentile believers of all time, or the church from Christ's first coming to his second coming? No. It, it, this clue rules out several theories. The fifth clue is that several phrases and words in this chapter show that he's dealing with historical events, not simply supra-historical ideals. In other words, non-historical ideas. All the way through... There is cause and effect phrases. So you've got something the witnesses do bringing fire on the enemies. You've got something the witnesses do that dries up the rain, etc. But let me read you some of the obvious time indicators. Prophesy 1,260 days, during the days, turn, as often, when they finish, three and a half days, after three and a half days, the second woe is past. Look out, here comes the third woe. I mean, that all speaks of historical progression, not simply non-historical ideals. Well, if you accept this clue, then virtually all of the idealist interpretations are ruled out. Now, I've got 16 similar clues in my paper that systematically rule out various theories. I'm just going to give you one more. And this sixth clue really narrows down the window of uh, time. I've already mentioned that verse 4 uses a perfect tense for the verb to stand, indicating that these witnesses had been standing before the Lord um, before John received this revelation. In other words, before AD 66, and they continue to so stand. So whatever theory you hold to, 
They didn't just become prophets in AD 66. They had to have already been recognized as prophets before then. He, he's taking already existing prophets. He's going to give, give them a new task. Now there's more. The future tense employed in verses 3, 7, 9, and 10 indicate that they're dressing up in sackcloth and their three-and-a-half-year ministry uh, is going to be future to John's having received this revelation. Not past, but future. Yet it can't be a distant future because they apparently die before all of the Jews in Jerusalem are captured. How do I come to that conclusion? Well, Josephus is quite clear. <laughs> when the whole city was overrun, there weren't anybody happy. Uh, they were all wailing. And yet, verse 10 says that the people of the land of Israel, that's what the word, Greek word gase is referring to, quote, will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell in the gase, the land. So the Jewish rebels are still optimistic. It's irrational, but they are still optimistic, and yet the Romans already have access to at least part of the city in verses 7 through 9. And so if you read through the, uh, the historians, Josephus and Josipon, the Roman historians, there's only a small window of time when these verses could happen. And Lord willing, in a future sermon, I'm going to speak about those details in uh, verses 10 through 13. But if you put all those four facts together, you'll see it narrows it down to a very precise period. Now, I'm not going to bore you with a um, bunch more information. Uh, I think this handout is quite adequate for that. But even with the measly six clues that I've shared this morning, we've ruled out all interpretations except for three. Okay? So which of the 37 theories out there are left standing? And all three are actually pretty good. Uh, they're decent theories. The first viewpoint left standing is James Stuart Russell's view that it's James, the brother of Jesus, and the apostle Peter. The second involves the apostle John as one of the witnesses, and either sees Peter or James as that witness, I would say it would have to be, if it was one of those two, it would have to be Peter and John. Uh, the third theory is the one I hold to, that it's two as yet unidentified uh, prophets uh, who are also apostles uh, during the war against Jerusalem. And I think there's a deliberate reason why they are unidentified, yet known to John. Now, I'm open to the first two theories. There's some evidence in their favor, but the evidence is mixed enough that I can't be dogmatic. And let me point out, none of those three theories will change the meaning or the application of the passage. So we really don't have to settle this question to know exactly what this passage is talking about. Whoever these witnesses are, they are the last of a kind. By early AD 70, just before they die, they will represent the last two authoritative witnesses. I believe that's apostles. So the last two authoritative witnesses slash apostles, last two prophets, last two spirit-inspired olive trees or spirit-shining lampstands. After 70 AD, there's never going to be another olive tree of the kind that's described in Zechariah. Never again. It's the last of them. As Revelation, uh, so all authoritative, infallible, revelatory gifts will cease. And as Revelation 10 verse 7 words it, but in the days of the blast of the seventh angel... And that happens in chapter 11, verse 15. That's when the last trumpet sounds. So in the days of the blast of the seventh angel, when he is about to trumpet, the mystery of God that he declared to his slaves, the prophets, would be finished. So prophecy ends when these last prophets die. Now, even though all three theories work, let me explain why I don't believe we can definitively prove that James, Peter, or John were one of the witnesses. Maybe more evidence will arise in the future, but... Let me start with what we have, and we'll start with James. When did he die? Well, there's debate on that. Uh, Josephus says he was killed quite a ways before the war, and what most scholars say is AD 62. Well, if Josephus is right, then absolutely he would not fit. But another early historian, Hegesippus, denies that, and he claims that James was thrown off the temple, was stoned, and then clubbed to death just before Jerusalem fell in AD 70. Well, if Hegesippus is right, then it fits perfectly. Uh, the Parnarion, written in AD 374, quotes from a very early work titled The Ascents of James, and that work indicates that James lived through an early attempt to stone him. 
So it could be he was stoned earlier in AD 62, and then he was put to death in 70, and Josephus just has kind of a conflation of the two accounts. It's hard to tell. The other problem that needs to be reconciled is that both historians say he was killed by the Jews. Okay, yet verses 7 through 8 says that Rome declares war against them, and Rome kills them. So in my books, James really doesn't fit. He's not an apostle. He's um, not killed by Rome. He's killed by the Jews. What about Peter? Russell makes a fairly strong case for Peter being alive and in Jerusalem during this war. And in doing so, he has to buck a lot of scholarship that places Peter's death in A.D. 64 or A.D. 67 or A.D. 68. Hey, wait a minute. Even the establishment's not settled on when he dies. They're not sure of when he dies. But um, there is recent scholarship that claims to have completely overturned the dogma that Peter died in Rome under Nero. In two extensive studies published in 2009 and 2013, Otto Zwierlein stated that, quote, there is not a single piece of reliable literary evidence and no archaeological evidence either that Peter was ever in Rome. Well, if that's true, if he was never in Rome, he couldn't exactly have been martyred in Rome in AD 68, right? Uh, And by the way, there are other scholars who have been saying the same thing since the early 1900s. The evidence for Peter being the first pope is nil. It is nil. He never was in Rome. I think the evidence is pretty overwhelming on that. So the bottom line is that there are at least a minority of scholars who favor Peter being in Jerusalem right up to the end. Now, if you take Babylon in 1 Peter 5.13 as a reference to uh, Jerusalem being under judgment, as I do, uh, then Peter was in Jerusalem, because he's writing from Babylon, he's in Jerusalem at least as late as A.D. 65, because that's when I believe uh, Peter was written. Now, there are late sources that say that Peter uh, was uh, martyred in Rome uh, in the end of Nero's reign, but most people say that these are really sketchy, unreliable. They have so many other mistakes and contradictions that they're hard to be trusted. And there are early but unreliable references to Peter being killed in Jerusalem in AD 70. For example, the Acts of Peter. Not very reliable at all. You read through it and you say, oh boy, this guy is screwy. Uh, But the Acts of Peter may preserve a well-known history when it says that Peter was led before King Herod Agrippa and crucified upside down. So that's similar to the later death, but he places it in Jerusalem. Well, Herod Agrippa wasn't in Rome. Herod Agrippa was fighting against Jerusalem under Titus. And, and so if that piece of evidence is true, then that would be evidence that Peter lived in Jerusalem. So I put a question mark next to that theory, but I don't write it off. What about John? Some scholars cite very early histories that indicate that the Apostle John was martyred in the city of Jerusalem just before the city was conquered. Of course, it's a tiny minority view, and it goes against the bulk of scholarship, which says that he lived into the second century. As a very old man, he died of old age. But I think it's worth mentioning that there are scholars who strongly argue that the evidence points to John being a martyr in AD 70. Um, I'm very attracted to the idea. It's John and Peter. There's so many things I won't get into this morning that do kind of line up, but uh, I'm not going there. Rather than sifting through endless debates, though, on uninspired sources, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 20, and I want to at least demonstrate that John was martyred. He did not die of old age. We're going to begin reading at uh, verse 17. This is a passage which, if taken at face value, says that both James and John would suffer martyrdom. Now, everybody admits James was. Uh, He was beheaded. Um, Anyway, this completely contradicts Roman Catholic tradition. Matthew 20, beginning at verse 17. Now, Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, And they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. So notice the context of Christ's martyrdom by both Jews and Gentiles in Jerusalem and a resurrection on the third day. Verse 20, then the mother of Zebedee's sons 
came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, We are able. So he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with, but to sit at my right hand and on the left is not mine to give, but it's for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. Now when Jesus says in verse 23, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, he's referring to his death. As Philip Schaff words it, The Lord had already the cup of his suffering at his lips, was already, so to speak, sprinkled with the first drops of the spray of his baptism of blood. Language is quite clear. Christ's cup is suffering, and his baptism is martyrdom. And so the cup and the baptism of Christ that they're sharing in is sharing in his sufferings, sharing in his kind of death. And the reason many commentators deny it and just generalize it to sufferings is because they think the Apostle John lived to a ripe old age and died of an old age. So they're reading something into the text, not out of the text. But the evidence from the early church is mixed. Two church historians quote Papias, a church father who was born in AD 70. That's pretty early. And he lived 163. So it's actually the earliest witness that we have. But anyway, they quote Papias as saying that John died at the hands of Jews in Jerusalem. So that would be a reference to the war. The Syrian martyrology of AD 450 lists both James and John as apostles in Jerusalem who died a martyr's death. Aphraates cites James and John as martyrs. Church father Chrysostom, he wrote a commentary on this verse. Listen to what he says. His meaning is, ye shall be counted worthy of martyrdom and shall suffer these things which I suffer. Ye shall close your life by a violent death, and in these things ye shall be partakers with me. I believe it was a martyrdom that he's talking about. Heinrich Meyer says, he's a modern uh, commentator, he, he says it's clear. Take it at face value, it means, quote, the cup and baptism of Jesus represent martyrdom. So if there is mixed evidence in church history of whether John died of natural causes, whether he died at the hands of Jews as a martyr, if this text says that he's going to be a martyr, I think we should side with the church fathers who said he died a martyr's death. Is it a definitive proof? No. And that's why I put a, a question mark beside all three names. But I think it would certainly fit the evidence rather beautifully. Now, one text that might immediately come to your mind and rule out John being a martyr is the last chapter of the Gospel of John. And I'm going to read that for you. After challenging Peter three times, do you love me? And after reinstituting Peter to his office three times, Jesus begins to talk about the kind of death that Peter will die in verse 18. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And some people say that was actually in Jerusalem, because in context, that was where he feared to go. He did not want to go to Jerusalem. Uh, he didn't even know about Rome. I mean, he had nothing to do with Rome. But anyway, whether that's true or not, verse 19 says, This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Now the death referred to, almost everybody agrees, is crucifixion. Hands stretched out. Verse 20. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breath at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Then the saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? Now two things here. John makes it crystal clear he is not exempt from death, the same kind of death that Peter was going to suffer from. And the second thing that he makes clear is that he would survive until Jesus came. 
And we saw in a previous sermon that Jesus visibly came on the clouds of heaven and was seen by many witnesses when he came in judgment on Jerusalem in AD 66. Those Jewish witnesses saw the form of a huge man in the sky leading angelic armies. Now, that's not the second coming. Second coming's to the earth, right? This is just a coming in the sky. So it's not the second coming, but it was Christ's promised visible coming. And Jesus had said, you know, that they would see him coming uh, before some of them uh, before all of them had died. So John actually does fit. Now, I put a question mark in this uh, paper here beside John's name simply because scholarship on the extra-biblical data is mixed. But uh, he could be, well be one of the two witnesses, especially, oh yeah, here's another point, especially because John calls himself Christ's witness in chapter 1, verse 2. He's Christ's witness. So anyway, I'm open to that. However, because I don't want to be dogmatic where the evidence is thin, I've defaulted to theory number six, which in a sense covers the other two theories, right? Um, That these are two as yet unidentified prophets during the war against Jerusalem. I'm 100% dogmatic that they are real prophets who prophesied during the first half of the war. That much is crystal clear to me. If God wanted us to know their identity, I think he could have told us who they were. Uh, The prophets may be Peter, James, and John that we've been discussing, or they may simply be the last two prophets standing. In one sense, it doesn't matter. But I like to emphasize the fact that they are deliberately unnamed uh, witnesses and prophets because they, they represent the end of an era of witnesses, in other words, the end of an era of apostles, and they also represent, verse 10, the end of an era of prophets. Okay, so where... Uh, Chapter 10 emphasized prophecy ceasing. This chapter will emphasize the office of prophet ceasing. Now, you're going to have to wait for the next sermon to go through the meaning, uh, verses 3 through 14. Uh, We cannot delve into that. There's a lot of cool stuff there. But let me end with three additional applications we can make just from what we have seen so far. First application is that martyrdom is a privilege and a great honor. Some people try to avoid death at all costs, but if God gives you the privilege of being a martyr, don't reject that gift. It is the highest honor. The early church recognized this. In fact, many people longed to be uh, martyrs for the sake of Christ. See, these prophets stood before the Lord of all the earth in verse 4, which means They're not martyred because God forgot about them or didn't care about them. The exact opposite. He was honoring them. It was an incredible privilege that they were blessed with. Second, think of the boldness of these men. They willingly entered a city destined for judgment. They willingly entered a city that every Christian had just recently abandoned. They embraced a suicide mission of witnessing and evangelizing, knowing that they would one day die. How many missionaries have taken the same exact risk? Sometimes they've died, sometimes they have not. How many missionaries have gone to headhunter tribes knowing full well that they would be eaten by cannibals? I think of Patton's comment. People said, but you might get eaten by, can- by cannibals. And he said, ah, it's not much different than you being eaten by worms. <laughs> Everybody's going to get eaten, you know. He-, he wasn't too worried about that. But this takes spirit-engendered, Holy Spirit-engendered boldness. And we need more bold people in the 20th century with this kind of uh, character. Thirdly, God did not leave them to face this alone. Very interesting. He sent them on a suicide mission with a team of two. And you know, in the Gospels, he did exactly the same thing. When he sent his missionaries out into very difficult, hostile territory, he sent them out two by two. He, he, we were never meant to be loners. We were meant to have each other's backs. Now, if it's time for us to die, fine. Let's die. But hey, let's make sure that if Satan wants to take, it, take us out, we make it difficult for Satan to take us out, and his kingdom is going to pay dearly when he takes us out. Uh, we're going to be seeing here in verse 5 that anybody who tried to take these, uh, these prophets out, they paid dearly for it. I like David Livingston's approach to the use of self-protection. He was criticized for carrying arms wherever he went. And um, his response was, I love peace as much as any mortal man. In fact, I go quite beyond you, for I love it so much I would fight for it. (laughs) That was a great answer. 
Uh, he thought it was ridiculous to just willingly, okay, go ahead and shoot me. No, he's going to, to shoot back. And these prophets had no problem returning fire, very literally. In a later sermon, I'm going to explain verse 5 of what it means. But I think it has obvious applications to missions. It says of these missionaries, and if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. They return fire very literally, right? So those are my last three applications today. Be willing to face death if God calls you to it. Second, be bold. Dare to be a Daniel. In fact, we're going to be singing. That is a hymn of response here. We desperately need more bold Christians who are not intimidated in our culture wars. You will not back down. Third, use prudence, have each other's backs, and be comfortable with returning fire. And may the Lord bless you as you face your own challenges by His grace. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the examples that you have given in history of how your grace can take us beyond our capabilities to do the supernatural. And I'm not just thinking of miracles. Father, the supernatural of boldness, of courage, of willingness to speak, even when everyone wants to shout you down, wants to kill you. Father, I pray that you would raise up men and women with backbone in our culture who would be, could be used by your Holy Spirit to turn this nation around. But Father, whether it turns around or does not turn around, may we glorify you with our lives. May we not be cowards who run from the fray. May we not be cowards who refuse to do what you have called us to do. Uh, sometimes you do call us to hide for a moment, but never to hide under a bushel. And I pray, Father, we would be faithful witnesses for your sake and that your kingdom would come more and more in our lives, would come more and more in our families, in our churches, and in this, uh, this uh, nation. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.